The United States of America is the most litigious country on earth. Roughly $310 billion. That's 2.2% of our gross domestic product is spent yearly on lawsuits. Half the money goes for legal fees. The other half of the money is paid out in damages. But it's mind-boggling, really. We spend $1,000 per citizen annually to resolve our legal disputes. And maybe more a problem than the lawsuits themselves is the fear of litigation. When was the last time you went to a swimming pool that had a real diving board? I mean a real diving board where you could, you could get a little spring. Why are new playgrounds today void of slides and seesaws and swings where you can catch air? The reason is that people in governments are afraid of being sued. They're afraid of injuries and the lawsuits that might result. The fear of getting sued is spoiling our fun. This is why manufacturers today try to defend themselves from litigation by attaching warning labels to their products. And they often go overboard trying to identify all the potential dangers that might be out there. In fact, there's a watchdog group that tracks the wackiest warning labels and awards annual prizes, believe it or not. For example, here's a bag of iron-on decals and a warning that reads, Do not iron while wearing shirt. Now tell me, who's going to try to iron on a decal while they're wearing the shirt? That's crazy. Here's another warning on a letter opener. Safety goggles recommended. (laughs) Opening a letter requires safety goggles? I love this one. It's a label that appeared on a small tractor. Avoid death. And I mean, look at the picture. I mean, how many tractor operators do you know need to be reminded not to get crushed by the bucket? But this sort of got me thinking. What if we allowed the fear of litigation and lawsuits to invade our church? And we went overboard with warning labels. I mean, what would this look like? Imagine the worship leader on Sunday morning wearing a sticker on his back. Beware of occasional off-key vocals. Or if the nursery ran out of blue diapers and they had to post pink diapers on boy babies does not cause gender confusion. (laughs) Or you walk in on a Sunday morning and your seat has the label on its back, air conditioning may cause frostbite, which is probably a real concern in this room. Or what if you looked real close at Pastor Sandy's pulpit and you saw that the label read, Though the jokes may not be funny, they are definitely not hazardous to your health. Or what if a warning appeared in the bottom corner of your announcement sheets? May cause paper cuts. You'd think we'd be a little overboard. Or last but certainly not least, a warning label. This church is not responsible for overly exuberant hugs. Imagine a church focused on lawyers and lawsuits and litigation. What kind of fellowship do you think that church would enjoy? What kind of witness do you think it would be to the community? Well, once again, welcome to the church at Corinth. 
For Paul begins in chapter 6 by addressing another problem that was occurring among these believers. They were suing each other in the local courts. The church had more a reputation for its litigation than for its love. We'll read the entirety of our text this morning, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll go back through and we'll look at it verse by verse. The title of this morning's message, Love or Litigation? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Last week, we studied in chapter 5, and we were shocked to learn that there was a man in this church shacking up with his stepmom, his father's wife. Paul was outraged at the situation. Well, here he finds a situation equally appalling. You pick up on Paul's anger here in verse 1. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? How dare you? I can't believe you're doing this thing. What are you thinking? How idiotic can you be? Why would members in the family of God, the church of our Lord Jesus, feel compelled to lay out their grievances against each other in a secular court? Corinthian Christians were filing lawsuits against one another in the Roman courts. They were being decided on by pagan judges. How dysfunctional can a church family be? For Christians to admit their inability to settle their own disputes and to have to air out their dirty laundry before unbelievers, this was nothing short of shameful in Paul's mind. The church shouldn't turn to the world for help. It's the world that should be running to the church for help and for wisdom, and for love, and for answers, and for the keys to unity. Apparently, no one in this church at Corinth was concerned for the glory of God. No one was looking out for the reputation of the church and its Savior. The Christians in Corinth were all about themselves, their rights, their welfare, their pride, their justice. Now, understand the issue at hand. Paul in the New Testament isn't condemning the use of laws and lawsuits and courts. Actually, Paul was well acquainted with the Roman tribunal. It was in Corinth, as a matter of fact, that he stood at the bema, the town's judgment seat. Acts chapter 18 records a story. It tells us how Paul was acquitted by Gallio, the Roman proconsul. 
It's ironic, Paul had been where he tells these believers not to go. There were times when Paul looked forward to his day in the pagan courts. Rome took pride in its sense of justice. On occasion, Paul relied on its legal system. You remember at the end of the book of Acts, after being unjustly held by the Romans for two years, Paul used the Roman law for his advantage. He appealed his case to the Caesar. In Romans 13, Paul taught unequivocally that it is the government's right to judge in criminal matters. And as for civil disputes, Paul was also not opposed to Christians going to court and using the jurisprudence of of the day to right a wrong or to address an injustice. Today, even, if a company is guilty of violating the public's trust, if a business conspires to harm and to defraud others, then there is nothing biblical to keep a Christian from going to court to rectify that injustice. In fact, there may be situations where it becomes a Christian's duty. But we're talking here about Christian versus company, or even Christian versus non-Christian. In chapter 6, Paul speaks of believers in court against each other. The docket should never read Christian versus Christian. Now realize, legal cases in most Greco-Roman cities were settled at the Bema, which was the seat of judgment. The Bema was a raised platform that was situated in the Agora, or the city center. The Agora was the marketplace. It was where the city did the majority of its business. It was here in the heart of the Agora that judges heard cases and rendered verdicts. It was all quite public, and it provided amusement for the crowds. I would have loved this. My wife could have gone into the shop. I could have walked down to the court, listened to a case, kind of gotten, you know, interested in it. It would have been a great diversion. It's amazing how entertaining a good legal contest can be. Here's a quiz for you. Can you name the most popular daytime television program in America? Yep. It's been number one since 2010. The answer, Judge Judy. That's right. People today go to court on TV before a judge, before a national audience, and they agree to a binding arbitration. Judge Judy outdraws outdraws soap operas and talk shows. In fact, this whole genre has become quite popular. There's a huge appeal. There's now Judge Mathis, the People's Court, Hot Court, Divorce Court with Judge Lynn Toler who happens to be a retired municipal court judge from Cleveland. And you got to love Judge Lynn. you just got to love this gal. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is a full plate of tacky with a side of hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you what it is. (laughs) And then you're going to tell me how it got that way. I mean, a full plate of tacky with a side of hot mess. Isn't that great? Sounds like Judge Lynn was describing what was going on back in chapter 5 when the the fellow was sleeping with his father's wife. And yet people get attracted to this kind of legal tabloid. There's something about high-stakes litigation, courtroom drama that piques the public's interest. 
But you see, this is what made the practice of Christians suing each other in the pagan courts all the more appalling to Paul. By publicizing their disputes in open court, the Corinthians were feeding the critics of Christianity more fodder for their skepticism. Each case put pettiness on display. Cross-examinations were designed to dig skeletons out of the closet, not make the believers look good. You see, every Christian has been gloriously saved. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten. But a lawyer's job isn't to trumpet that truth. He puts a person on the stand to grill them and to document their mistakes. Rather than glory in your forgiveness, a lawyer is going to highlight your sins. And that's especially true of a divorce lawyer, is it not? I would imagine most Christian v. Christian cases heard in Gwinnett County courtrooms, they aren't between business partners or neighbors or personal injury lawsuits. No, they're between husbands and wives. Realize that if you file a divorce that has no biblical grounds, you sin in two ways. You violate your marital vows and also you take a fellow Christian to court. Paul says you shouldn't. In Corinth, whenever a case between two Christians was tried at the Bema, the cause of Christ took another black eye. It stained the witness of the church. The same travesty happens today when believers take each other to court. It gives the critics room to crow. Look at those Christians. Oh, they talk about loving each other, but they can't even get along. Just look at all those hypocrites. Well, Paul further rebukes the church at Corinth in verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? In other words, if one of you, if one day you'll rule the world, why can't you settle church squabbles? This is a verse with amazing implications. In Luke chapter 19, in the parable of the Minas, Jesus promised his servant this. He said, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. Wow, this simple parable has some far-reaching prophetic implications. When Jesus returns to earth at the end of the age, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to reign on this earth for a thousand years, the Bible tells us. It's named after its duration, the millennial kingdom. And a host of miracles will accompany Jesus' return. The lamb will lie down with the lion. A man a hundred years old will still be considered an infant. The earth's topography will be restored to the garden paradise it once was. Amazing things will happen when Jesus reigns. But the most surprising feature of his future administration are those who help Jesus to manage it. Guess who that is? It's you and it's me. Apparently, those who have been faithful to Jesus now will reign and rule with him then. Jesus said, you were faithful in a very little. Notice it doesn't take much. You're not called. You or I, neither one are called to save the whole world. We're just called to help our neighbor, to witness to our friends, to serve where we fit. Imagine, all you have to do is just the few things that Jesus wants you to do, and he'll reward you in that day, in this glorious kingdom, with ten cities. I've already started picking mine out. Honolulu, 
Cabo San Lucas, Bora Bora. I might get Lilburn between and Conyers. But think of it, you and I are going to reign with Christ. Anywhere you're, you, any post you receive is going to be glorious. We're going to help to manage a brand new world. We'll provide guidance to folks who were born during that thousand years. It will require wisdom. It will take some discernment. So if one day you're going to be passing out judgments and rendering decisions to cities in a redeemed world... Why can't you solve the petty problems among yourself right now? Why drag a brother before the worldly courts? Verse 3 takes it even further. He says, do you not know that you shall judge angels? Are you kidding me? Judge angels? He says, how much more things that pertain to this life? Now here's a truth that boggles my brain. I mean, who knows the full extent of what this means? We're going to judge angels? And what really amazes me is how Paul talks about it. He talks about the ways and means of angels as if they were common knowledge to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? He's saying, don't you realize this is basic stuff? Surely you're an expert on angels. You're going to judge them one day. Paul must have taught the Corinthians a lot more while he was with them than he wrote to them in his subsequent letters. Sadly, we don't have more thoughts on angels from Paul. I wish we did. And yet there are some biblical truths that do address angels that we do know. For example, Psalm chapter 8 tells us that a man, that man in general was created a little lower than the angels. But that one day we would be exalted above them. From the outset of, of our destiny, we were to soar above the angels. We were made a little lower for a season. God wanted us to learn humility, but eventually we will be of a higher order. In fact, it was a Jewish legend that this was why Lucifer or Satan sinned and revolted against God. He heard one day that the little mud daubers, those little creatures that God had made from the dust of the ground, that one day they would be exalted, that man would share in God's glory. And would be appointed over angels, even to rule and judge over angels. And Satan couldn't stand the thought. No way am I going to be ruled over by a little mud dauber. And so he made it his mission to wipe out mankind. First the fall, then the flood. Ultimately the cross, eventually Armageddon. These will all be Satan's attempts to wipe out mankind. He will fail, of course. He can't wipe out... Mankind as a whole, but he can steer individuals to hell. And this is where he succeeds all too often. In his commentary, my friend David Guzik writes, We can imagine the perverse, proud pleasure Satan takes over every soul that goes to hell. They won't sit in judgment over me. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the Spirit of God also refers to the angels as ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Though Satan rejected the role, the angels who stayed loyal to God embraced this purpose. Their call today is to minister and to serve the heirs of salvation. That's us, believers in Jesus. Hey, I believe in guardian angels. I believe you've got one. 
The Old Testament speaks of guardian angels. Psalm 91 verse 11 tells us, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Psalm 34 verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. My angel's been camped on my bumper many a time. We'll certainly judge the angels who rebelled against God. But we might also be called on to fill out a report card on our guardian angels. Won't this be something? Can you imagine getting to heaven and one day asking, Now, Gabe, you remember back on August the 25th, 2015? Where were you, man? I was on 78 Highway and I had that fender bender. Where were you, man? We're going to judge angels. Reminds me of the wife riding in the car with her husband. She said, Aren't you driving a little too fast here? The husband countered. He said, honey, don't worry. Don't you believe in guardian angels? Ours will protect us. Imagine that, a speeding husband getting spiritual on his wife. The wife replied, sure, I believe in guardian angels, but honey, you're going so fast, you left ours miles back up the road. (laughs) Apparently, this wife believed in angels that drive the speed limit, whether husbands do or not. Exactly how, I'm not sure, but somehow we're going to judge angels one day. That's a heavy responsibility. But all this highlights Paul's point. If the Corinthians are going to judge eternally and spiritually, shouldn't they be able to settle disputes in the here and now? It's like a brain surgeon who trains for years to crack open a human skull and perform the delicate, high-precision, neurological handiwork of brain surgery Yet he comes home one afternoon with a headache and he doesn't know he can take two Advil and feel better. He's qualified for surgery, but he can't take an aspirin. And yet this was the Corinthians. Hey, they'll one day judge super-powered, other-dimensional creatures in angels, but they can't resolve an argument between two housewives, two feuding moms, a couple of guys with a business deal that went sour. What's the deal? Again, Paul reasons, he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? And here the apostle becomes sarcastic. Earlier, we saw that the Corinthians had looked down their noses at the heathen around them. They felt superior to the unbelievers. They had separated themselves from them. Here Paul is saying, why are you asking the people you least esteem? To judge your disputes. If you don't think the unbelievers are good enough to eat with, well then why are you depending on them to help you sort out your grievances? He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? I mean, isn't there one wise brother among you who has enough discernment that you can trust him to decide a settlement? Surely the Corinthians have a Judge Judy. Again, Paul is so astonished. He says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. And I want you to notice the family words that Paul uses. Brother goes to law against brother. Really? Think about this. Brother against brother? What kind of an environment did this create for the church at Corinth? You know, I've seen some blood families go to war with each other in court. 
And seldom does a family survive a legal battle intact. When a fracture is this deep, when it goes this far, it's hard to heal. A permanent rift ends up the result. This is what was happening in the Corinthian church. You know, if this kind of thing occurred today in our churches today, the litigants, they would just move on to one of the other hundred churches in town, you know, close by. But in the first century in Corinth, there was only one church in town. They only had one single church in Corinth. Imagine sitting down on a Sunday and three rows in front of you is the guy who's got you in court who's suing you. He wants to take the shirt off your back, take the food out of your kids' mouths. Do you think that kind of atmosphere is going to interfere with your worship experience that morning? I would imagine so. And this is why Paul says to the Corinthians that this can't continue. Obviously, you're unable to settle your disputes on your own. So it's time someone intervened. It's time for you to get some help. Isn't there one wise man among you able to judge? And, and of course, Paul is being facetious. For there were many wise men in the church at Corinth who could judge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul mentions a few Corinthians by name. Men that he respected, of whom he had high regard. Stephanus. Fortunatus, Achaicus, others he noted in different places. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 15, Paul says this of the household of Stephanus. He says, they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such. I mean, Stephanus was one of the many men in the church in Corinth, mature enough to judge among them. The Corinthians needed to submit themselves to these men. And there have been occasions in our church when wise men have been asked to arbitrate in disputes among our members. It wasn't easy for them. It put a target on their back. It set them up for criticism. They ran the risk of making people unhappy and turning friends into enemies. But they stepped up for the sake of Christ and of His church, for the love of God, for the love of Jesus, out of concern for our reputation, they served. And even those who at the time disagreed with their ruling, I'm sure that over time have come to appreciate their sacrifice and to respect their decision. Part of the issue was the Corinthians with them running to the courts. Part of the issue was that they were quick to sue. They wanted to resolve these disputes outside of the church. But another side of the problem may have been the unwillingness for anyone in the church to risk upsetting folks and mediating a conflict and getting involved. It's a credit when wise believers agree to help in these matters. But when that doesn't happen, when Christians take the easy way out, whether it's somebody who sits back and says, well, I, I won't get involved, or somebody else who says, well, I'm just going to sue. Either way, Paul writes, now therefore... It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Again, note his strong language. It's an utter failure. If it gets all the way to a secular court, if no one is there for arbitration, or if the plaintiffs aren't open to mediation, then everyone loses. You're all an utter failure. There is no winner here. It doesn't matter what monetary award or what rec the court does to rectify the situation. As far as the cause of Christ is concerned, you're all losers. You're utter failures. 
Oh, the judge might find someone in, find in favor of someone and give them a few bucks, but that doesn't make them a winner, not in this situation. Not with two Christians. Both are losers. The church has lost. Christ has lost. See, here's a preferable outcome. Verse 7. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Paul is saying it's better for you to be personally defrauded, to take a hit in your own wallet or to your own pride than it is to disgrace the name of Christ by hauling a brother before a secular court. A Christian should be willing to suffer personally before he allows the body of Christ to suffer publicly. Hopefully it doesn't come to this. The church leaders should assert themselves and offer some kind of arbitration. But even if they don't, a Christian should love the Lord and love his church enough to see the big picture. To absorb the blow. To put the glory of God and the reputation of Christ in his church ahead of himself. There have been times when I've been taken advantage of by people who call themselves Christian. Even folks who've attended our church. I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years. Lots of stuff has happened. I've done business with Christians who didn't hold up their end of the deal. It's interesting. Over the years, I've learned that when people start dealing with the pastor, they act strange. Why do you get strange when, you act, when you're around? I don't get that. But they do. People act, well, he's the pastor. People act strange. They forget it's business. Maybe they're trying to do me a favor, so in their minds, I should be happy with what I get. Or they think I'm so spiritual that it shouldn't bother me if it takes longer than they promised. Remember the fruits of the Spirit, Pastor Sandy. Remember patience. I'm thinking, remember to honor your word. And on a couple of occasions, when things went sour, I thought about what recourse could I take. I've already read 1 Corinthians 6. This is out. I can't sue anybody. Doggone it. But maybe I can call a lawyer and just put a little pressure on them just to kind of help the situation along. Every time I've contemplated that after thinking it through, I've always come to the same conclusion. Just let it go. Just let it go. It's not worth it. For one, I still want to be their pastor. And if they've cheated me, they really need a pastor. And two, why make it any more messy? They'll start talking and they'll accuse me of this or that and it just damages people's opinion of the church. We just don't need it. The lesson, not only for a pastor, but for any Christian, is to it's never just business. It's always about Jesus. I want to repeat that. It is never just business. Not if you're a Christian. It's always about Jesus. We can't forget, we are the only Bible some folks will ever read. Here's how we should think when we're defrauded by a brother or sister in Christ. And there ends up being no recourse. It's not that you have avoided taking them to court. It's that you have appealed your case to a higher court. You're trusting God to deal with the injustice His way, to right a wrong His way, to take care of you 
His way. Leonard Sweet is an author and a popular Christian speaker. He tells the story of an encounter he had in Phoenix, Arizona. The university chaplain picked him up at the airport in his new Ford Ranger pickup truck. Well, Leonard Sweet had just sold his Dodge pickup truck and he was mourning its loss. And their love for pickups created an instant bond between these two men. One of the men mentioned a bumper sticker he'd just seen. Nothing is more beautiful than a man in his truck. They both laughed and agreed. Well, he went on with his speaking engagement. Two days later, the man was taking Sweet back to the airport. And as he climbed into the truck, he noticed some scratches on the panel of the passenger door. He asked him, what happened? The chaplain explained, he said, well, my neighbor's basketball post fell and scratched my truck. Sweet said, oh, this truck still smells new. That's when the chaplain added, what's worse is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Sweet was up in arms. He asked him, he said, well, did you contact your insurance company? How are you going to get this guy to pay for it? And that's when the chaplain said, this has been a real spiritual journey, a lot of prayer and soul searching. My wife and I discussed hiring an attorney, but it came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can be in a relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than the truck, I decided I'd rather be in a relationship than be right. Besides, trucks are meant to be banged up, and I got mine initiated a little earlier than I expected. And this is the attitude that Paul is commending to the Corinthians. What's more important to you? Some possession that is going to be gone in a couple of years, it's going to rot out and deteriorate, or people who are going to live forever. What's more important to you, possessions or people? What's more important to you, you being right or you being in relationship with other people? You can die right. I'd rather die with some folks around me who love me. What's more important to you? Your sense of justice or our witness to the world? 10,000 years from now, what will be more important to God's glory and to the reputation of His church? The couple of hundred bucks the court might have awarded you or the reputation of Jesus Christ? A million dollars is not worth us besmudging the reputation of our Lord Jesus and His church. Again, God has a myriad of ways to recoup the couple of hundred bucks. But it's far more difficult to undo the damage that might occur in the minds and hearts of the people who are watching our lives if we act recklessly. Don't succumb to either pettiness or pride. Trust God and love others. And then Paul says in verse 8, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. This was truly shameful. I mean, you'd hope the scenario discussed in verse 7 would never happen. That this would be purely hypothetical. God forbid that a Christian would do wrong and cheat another Christian. Rather than take advantage of his brethren when a Christian does business, he should go out of his way to be fair. He should go beyond what's expected. Not because he has to but because he wants to. We should be known for love, not litigation. I think the best illustration of all this is marriage. 
There's no perfect marriage. Every married couple has their squabbles, has their spats. At times they might even need some outside help in settling such disputes. But what they don't need, they never need, is to go out and air their dirty laundry. I mean, the worst thing for a marriage is for the husband and wife to hash out their problems in public. A wife shouldn't chat up her hubby's faults at the ladies' brunch. A husband should protect his wife's reputation in the eyes of others. Don't add to the tension. Address the problem. Don't make it worse. And the same lesson applies to the church. There is no perfect church. Christians are redeemed people, but we're still people. We've been perfected and we're being perfected. Both are equally true. This means that we'll have our squabbles. We'll have quarrels and spats. At times we might even need help resolving them among one another. But we should make every effort to be discreet. Let's be respectful of one another. Let's be mindful of Christ and His glory. We can settle our disputes in-house. We need to keep the dirty laundry in the family. The church should mediate its own clashes. It's a bad witness when we seek help from this lost world. And there we have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-8. through 8. 